Welcome to episode 148 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast using, learning, educating, and sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Destination Linux is meant for all experience levels. Whether you're a guru, a sudo, or you just heard about Linux today, we hope you can find some usefulness and enjoyment in the show, even if it's just from us trolling Michael. My name's Noah, and with me today uh, is the rest of my arc containing the Linux geeks. They are Ryan, Zeb, and Michael. Ryan, how's your week been? My week has been fabulous. I've done plenty of trolling of Michael, which is always fantastic. Good, but most required. Importantly, yeah, I have been playing with the Pinebook Pro. I've been I putting you. it through its paces oh. and you know, trying to you know, get to the point where I can do a full review on my channel to uh, as a conclusive video now kind of wrapping up. This is what this device is. This is what the device is not. Um, I also put some more content out there. But on my other machine, and you'll be... Uh, happy to know I have the Lenovo ThinkPad X1 Carbon still, and I decided to throw MX19 on that because I mm-hmm. haven't played with MX in a while. And my goodness, I just love MX. I mean, it is just such a fantastic distro. The tools that he has in place are fabulous. The distro looks gorgeous for especially being um, you know, XFCE and Debian and things. He just modernizes it, makes it very beautiful. But the thing that I like the most is the stuff that maybe most people wouldn't see. Like during the installer, for instance, a very clear section separate from where you want to install the hard drive section to say, where do you want to install Grub now? Whereas a lot of distros will hide that under advanced settings or maybe not even give you the option at all. And this is where you have the situation where all of our forums in Linux are littered with people saying, oh my gosh, I overwrote, I installed this other distro I wanted to try on a second hard drive and I overwrote everything and now Grub doesn't work because of not having a clear distinction, a clear area to say, this is where I want to put Grub on or I don't want to put Grub in at all. I want to let another distro and and having things like that just make it such a great Mm -hmm. experience. So I love MX. uh, So if you haven't checked it out lately, check out MX19. I've just really uh, had a lot of enjoyment from it. That sounds awesome. The only thing I'm upset about is I feel like you should not be able to play with your pine book until I get mine. I have paid (laughs) my money. I have made my order. And do you see a pine book in my hands? No, all empty. So I don't That's have a pine book to play. Story with. I've ever heard actually. On, the, on the bright side, you might be you might be in the the batch to get the ANSI keyboard, and he has to deal with the ISO keyboard. So there could be that. Yeah, it's I true. did. Yeah, I got the US keyboard. So that's why so. it's actually like we're waiting. Perfect answer for you. Yours is a UK keyboard. Ship it over. Thank you. Exactly, <laughs> Brian. Just uh, get on that. Zeb, tell me about your week. It's been a good week, but a difficult week because we've actually been dealing on the Peppermint forums with the increase in activity after I appeared on um, Linux for Everyone. And it's surprising how many additional new users we've acquired in the last couple of weeks. And I know we're not supposed to look at it, but if you look at DistroWatch, we've now leapt ahead of Lubuntu, Sparky. So I think sort of like long-term, 25, that's been about the highest we've been um, in the DistroWatch rankings. And I know they don't really count, but hey, it's a, it's a fun little metric to throw out there every now and again. So yeah, got lots of new users coming in. And what I love about it is lots of new users, lots of different hardware, lots of problems. Because there's only like 15 or 20 of us testers when we come around to test the new ISO. 
So it's not until somebody comes along with his Okie Koki 2000 laptop that he bought in 1942 that we realise <laughs> that we didn't look at that type of, of of problem. So yeah, it's been it's been really good fun, if not busy. The shameless self-promotion here, uh, we need to get you added to linuxdelta.com and uh, and let the community review the distro and then compare it and contrast it to other distros. What is Peppermint yes, OS good for? Is it good for service, IoT, desktop, all three? I'd like to know. I'll try and work on that. Sounds good. So it's interesting, Noah. I'm, I'm sitting here on linuxdelta.com and I was just quickly clicking through all the distros just to see the average rating for every distro and a couple... Here, I've been rated really high. Mm -hmm. I think obviously deserve it. And in some, um, clearly it's kind of a mix. But the highest rated distro on here is Ubuntu Mate. Yeah, it is. And so what's interesting about that is, and we designed the site based off of this, I don't actually see... Uh, top-rated reviews as a really good metric of being a good distro, right? And I'll, I'll explain why. If you have five people that rate, well, it, let's use real examples. It, on LinuxDelta.com, Ubuntu Mate has 29 reviews, 4.9 stars. So 29 people decided that Ubuntu Mate is a really good distro, the 29 people that use it. However, if you go back up to the top and search by most reviews, what you'll find is OpenSUSE has a 4.65 star review and 78 reviews. Now, if I'm looking for a desktop distribution and I want to know what I'm going to have the best experience on, would you rather have the desktop distribution that 29 people use or 78 people use uh, with a, you know, a, a, like a 0.3 of a star mm -hmm. discrepancy or whatever you see what i'm saying yeah. and, and obviously and and I, this is not to say i want to be very clear this is not to say that ubuntu mate is an inferior distro to open anything like that this is obviously a, a representation of the limited amount of metrics that we have today but as we continue to grow the site and we continue to move forward um this is the kind of thing that i look at and go okay I, I am interested in in having people, real community members, people that actually use these things, come over and tell us what they're and what they're using. And then we have created algorithms that we can go and kind of condense that down and present it as information. So when I go to Amazon and I purchase something, I want to see where the most reviews are, not necessarily what the highest reviews are, because the most reviews tell me what the majority of people are using and right. are happy with. Um, and of course, if you have a majority of reviews and it's one star, then we know that that's a bad distro. But when we get above that 4.5-ish stars, I would say that's a good distro. And so obviously, you as the community, again, kind of sh shameless self-promotion here, uh, you as the community have the opportunity to go and kind of voice your opinion on this. And, and I think that's a great way to do it. Well, it's funny because I you know, didn't notice that that sort feature is there, but you guys have been doing some work on this side. You've added some yeah. really cool features here. I love that. That's really, that's very helpful. So I was clicking through manually each one um, and, and just doing it. But this is more like you said of, of the way Amazon say would do reviews on things where I know when I'm looking for a product, I sort first by how many stars it has, you know, does it have four or more stars? And then I look for how many reviews has it has mm -hmm. actually been placed because right. we know there's a lot of gaming with that type of stuff that happens. And so if you have something with 1400 four stars, that means a lot more than 10 four stars. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Or even 10 five stars, which turns out to be the friend of the developer or whatever, the friend of the person who, who built it, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Very cool. I'm surprised Arch Linux isn't at the top, and there's probably something wrong with your algorithm there, but I'll help you with that Yeah, we're, we're, we're fine-tuning the, uh, fine the thing. I actually told him, I said, if we can't figure it out, what we'll just do is write a last piece of code that says, you know, if else, just raise Keep Linux Arch, or raise Arch well, to the top. So that's obviously what everybody wants to use. perfect, because Kubuntu doesn't even get in the top 10, Michael. <laughs> Kubuntu, Kubuntu has list? my highest review, I'll have you know. Yeah. 
I mean, Kubuntu is, hasn't been on there that long, so that's probably what it is. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, Michael, what is new in your world? Uh, many things. I've actually improved the OBS, got some new scenes. And uh, also, uh, I've got the. Uh, I've, I've actually found a new feature in. Not really a feature, but I found a way to streamline my Caden uh, Live editing. And you know the best thing about doing computers, there's always some kind of technical issue that you know comes up randomly here and there. So all the time I saved in actually like editing with Caden Live, I saved like 20, 30 minutes or so with this particular fix. And all of that was thrown away when I was trying to do the actual publishing because there were some technical issues in here and there. So that's that's always just beautiful where it just becomes like a you know an, an even slate is as it were. Uh, but I also got a. Uh, monitor arm recently and as is tradition for at least a little while it's on top of the bookcase right here so at some point i will be setting it up uh but yeah so i'm i'm looking forward to all that stuff but uh other than that you know just making some content for the internet so noah what you been up to this week well uh episode two of the school of hard knocks podcast is about to be released i just finished uh, the majority of the editing got a couple of other touches to do now this is kind of a cool episode because it's very interpersonal we're talking about marriage and relationships and i invited my wife to host the episode with me and so we talk a little bit about well not a little bit we spend a decent amount of time talking about our relationship we obviously we got together when we were in high school when we were sophomores in high school and uh, and we we got married uh, before we were even really adults and um you know we've lived with each other and kind of grown up together and so yeah you look back you know what is i don't know 16 17 some years at 30 years old i have spent more time alive married to my wife than i've spent uh, single and i certainly haven't had a single moment of my adult life where i haven't been married and so that kind of gives me a, a, an interesting perspective and so her and i chatted and kind of talked about some things and gave some advice and some thoughts and shared our uh, what works for us what doesn't work for us and then we invited another couple who is in a, a relationship and they have just started their relationship and they have made uh, very different relationship choices and gone about their relationship a very different way and they're in a very different kind of relationship and so we're going to try to show uh what what those differences are and and kind of offer some advice as far as uh the as far as the age when we got together, we were, I think she was 15 years old and I was 16 when we got together. And so I'm 32 now. So that makes her 31. Yeah. We've been together for a long time. Wow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that'll be out tonight. School of Hard Knocks. That show. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with their intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and much more. Now, you can get all of this, plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. And you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. As Ryan would say, that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date on the latest open source software, languages, frameworks, the whole kit and caboodle. You can get started on DigitalOcean for one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. That's do.co slash dl. And again, you can get started with DigitalOcean and that $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for continuing to sponsor Destination Linux. Okay, so our community feedback this week, he writes, Hey, I've listened to Destination Linux from around episode 67. Destination Linux is my favorite podcast style media. Keep it up. 
In the last episode, you talked about Firefox Punicode vulnerability. On a side note, both Bow and Dolphin were really good. By the way, I use Arch. I'm sure my I'm sure Ryan puts that in every week, whether they say that or not. Um, while installing IceCat and reading what it changes from Firefox, I saw a value network.idn underscore show underscore punicode semicolon true. After some quick reading, I tried it out and it seemed to fix a vulnerability issue. So after setting this network.idn underscore show underscore punicode to true in about colon config, Ryan can finally keep on ordering MacBooks without what? worrying about fake Apple sites stealing his iMoneys. How rude. <laughs> it should even work with Windows, so Michael is also covered. How dare you. Ah, uh, by the way, I dual boo, I mean, read AUR change dogs and use i3 as one should. <laughs> So I think he's had a go at everyone there. Um, except Zeb no, and Noah. Except me and you, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. You I guys... like this guy. What? <laughs> well, oh, sorry. I mean, yeah, um, how dare you write in with such a carefully crafted, articulate, well-worded email? Wow. <laughs> so what's interesting is I did try this uh, tip out here and in, in Firefox, and it did work. It did stop the puny code from changing um, to show apple.com in the, in the test site that they have out there is actually apple.com. That's why we keep saying that. Um, and it did work. So uh, I think what it's doing here is turning off Unicode. Yes. And, and because of that, you, you know, like I think Bo was saying, you probably don't need those other languages. Not everybody's going to need them when there's translation services. If you had certain issues in, in reading certain sites, then you may need to turn that back on. But if you're more worried about that vulnerability, um, you can check the show notes, but this would be a good way of basically turning that off because it still hasn't been patched. So that, that's an interesting thing. And Michael, I don't know if you've tried this in windows or not. I don't uh, use do windows. This- so no, I haven't, but, uh, okay, shocking. Uh, but it does. It, it, I did try it and it did work for what I need, what it does for the, like what it's supposed to do. But the, the issue is that there are some people who use different languages that use these different kind of characters that they really can't turn it off by default. They just need to have some kind of – they just need to make it where the Punicode does not change the domain. And that would be fine because if they had the Punicode uh, being re- translated in everywhere else, it would be fine. It's just the fact that it's translated in the domain is the problem. So if they just fix that, this wouldn't be an issue. I'm just glad I could keep on ordering MacBooks with my iMoney. Yes. yes. <laughs> iMoney is plural. Is that, that's going to be a thing next from Apple. I monies probably. So Adrian writes in to say, "Hi guys. First up, I'd like to say that I really enjoy the show. However, I'd like to hear your comments about Stratus D, which is supposed to be a replacement for ButterFS and ZFS made by Red Hat. Uh, personally, I'm still on LVM plus XFS for servers and LVM plus Extended Four for workstations." Rollbacks can be done using LVM snapshots as well as consistent backups with rsync. Regarding Fedora and Docker, I actually prefer Podman over Docker because the, with Podman, you interact directly with the image registry and containers, images, and the kernel, whereas the Docker, everything has to interact with a service that is running as root. Uh, keep up the amazing work. Cheers, Adrian. And I agree with the uh, Podman versus Docker debate. Like Podman and Builda are a better structure 
uh, it was just more in the situation of like removing the Docker and like they're just changing the way they were doing Docker. Not necessarily saying that Docker is better. It's just that it's the most. It's like the the brand that everybody knows. Like everybody knows what a Docker is, but not everybody knows what Podman is, and that sort of thing is what I was getting at. Uh, but I would say that it is better. Although I'm pretty sure that the service is running the service running as root has been addressed by Docker, but that might not. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure they did address that. Uh, but as far as like uh, Stratus D, I haven't tried Strat- Stratus D myself. Uh, but based on the way they describe it, it does make it possible to have the similar benefits of ZFS and ButterFS using Extended 4 instead. It, lo- it looks interesting, but it's pretty new. And oh, ZFS has had like tried and true testing for like 20 years or so. So I'm more interested in that becoming a thing. But, you know, there are there's a lot of options for it. So a quick question for you technical guys. Is this something that your Linux noob can get involved in by just utilizing it setting it and forgetting it or do you have to sort of dig a bit deeper and understand what's going no in fact one of the reasons that red hat made the choice to diverge from just a standard dockers and and go towards Mm -hmm. this more modular system was specifically because um there was more advancement and more features and more robustness and all those kinds of things and i i actually i can't remember who it was that we talked to I, i i did a bunch of interviews with people from red hat all right in a row back in like May of last year, and they're they're up on our YouTube channel, uh, YouTube.com/slash/mindrootmedia. But if you look at, if you listen to those, they talk specifically about. Actually, it was Chris Wright. Uh, it was was who we talked to, and they they talk specifically about how it was designed to to take it from a certified system administrator. I have all the technical skill stuff like that, and start bringing it down to, hey, the system is set up, it's working, and there's just other people need to be able to manage it. Can anybody do that? And so there, I mean, that's the whole idea between being able to manage RHEL eight from a web browser and and things like cockpit and so on and so forth. Is that it makes it super super easy and straightforward, and you don't have to be a command line genius and know a bunch of magical incantations to get your job done. No, it is absolutely designed for anybody to sit up and play with these things. Containers specifically were designed, even Docker itself was designed from the standpoint that you go to install this piece of application. Well, you better have this library and that version of PHP and have this thing over here and that thing over there and that gets to be complicated and difficult for people to manage. And so with the container technology, you just literally drop the solution in and now it runs and now everybody's happy. So yeah, I would say anybody should 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 consider playing with these things. Nice. Yeah. And there's also more work being done on various different structures for like the the like ZFS being done for uh, you know, Ubuntu's doing that as like currently as an experimental, but their goal is to have it in the LTS be more user friendly so that you could no matter what your skill level is to make it make it much easier. I, I, I respectfully I let me see if I can find this. I um let me see if I can find this and throw it in the show notes. I I respectfully uh, disagree to a certain extent. I would submit to you that uh, that ZFS on Ubuntu today is is perfectly user friendly. It's literally a single package and three commands to to get it up and running. Now, does it have some fancy graphical user interface? Probably not. Is there any integration into the system disk utility? No. So if by those things you're saying they need to make it easier, I, I or if Canonical is saying they need to make it easier, I guess I would kind of understand. That's what I'm but referring as to. Far- yeah, but as far as like to to Zeb's question, can anybody just do this? Absolutely, this is not a difficult thing to do. You can teach yourself to set up ZFS on Ubuntu in forty five seconds. Their tutorial mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Cool. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's, when it's it comes to Stratus D, though, and a replacement for ButterFS and ZFS, when you're dealing with the file system, for instance, ButterFS got a bad rap because of situations that happened where people lost their data. There is literally like zero, uh, especially in the community when you're dealing with servers and people's work and jobs of a give for a file system that loses files. Whether it happens once, you know, and then it's gone away and now ButterF has been perfect. People were holding that forever at this point. And it's going to be hard to convince anybody without massive marketing backing to take a look at it again. ZFS has a proven track record so when I hear about the other options out there like Stratus D and others, I, to me, it's thing for me, it will become something in the future, but it's going to have to have a long track record of being stable and offering some new features and advantages over something like ZFS, which, you know, when you have so many big names that have used ZFS for so long and are pulling ZFS in, I think I would put my money on ZFS at this moment, not to say others won't come in or still be used in other places, but... I think ZFS is pretty much going to be your standard going forward. I, I agree. And I don't think that I, I think if you look at what is actually being integrated into to systems, like if you look at where the push is, there's not like as much as we joke about ButterFS, how many companies are actively looking to 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 center around ButterFS versus how many companies are desperate to get based on ZFS? Mm-hmm. And just before we move on, we've also had a, a question from our um, patrons that does um, Podman run on anything other than Fedora stroke Red Hat? Sure. It's just it's open source software. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank you. So finally, Rob writes in and he says, hey, guys, thank you for all you do. I've been catching up a lot on the episodes and I love the different perspectives. I often have comments to toss back and maybe I will join some of the chat channels. However, after finishing episode 141 specifically, the part on the pine cluster I want to write in about. It was said on the show that this was just a publicity stunt. And while that is mostly true, it is also said by someone on the show that it was otherwise useless. That was Michael for sure. Uh, A number of companies. Fake news. It wasn't? Okay. All right. Well, if it's negative, it's usually you, but we'll continue on here with the email. It says a number of companies and universities have been spinning up sizable Raspberry Pi based clusters, and they have a very practical use in that they're used for testing out code in processes on something very cost effective for promoting those code, that code, AI, ML modules, et cetera. Very expensive supercomputer clusters. Such testing and tuning their work so if they can use 128 core Pi cluster to test and validate all the work and know it's written good, fix mistakes and inefficiencies and all that, they can go forward with super high performance computers and supercomputers. Keep up all of the great work and thanks again, Rob. So Rob is referring to Oracle here. There was an article that we covered back um, uh, regarding Oracle and they were basically setting up thousands of Raspberry Pi clusters together mm-hmm in order to make a publicity stunt, which he agrees it is. He's just stating that somebody said otherwise it was useless and doing this type of thing actually isn't useless at all. It, it could have some usability in the real world there. Yeah. So thoughts? No, I agree that it totally could be useful in certain cases, like maybe building stuff for ARM or building stuff for the Pi itself. Like that could be useful. And it also could be done in a testing structure of maybe if they want to do ARM on servers, they could you know, use this as a testing bench for that. Um, I, I think that it's, it's not necessarily 100% useless. I, I think we, our entire point on the, sh- on the show was just to say that it's a, basically it's, it's just a 
publicity publicity stunt because they could have used things not the pie and the pie gets them to you know get also being put on Plus podcasts and stuff i think that's why we were so negative on it uh, yeah <laughs> also it's because it's oracle and because they didn't they didn't take the opportunity to make the same the, the amount to actually be like pie based like to have the actual amount of pies be the number of pie and that is why i was disappointed with them the most that was a marketing failure for sure right yeah exactly so that's why we were negative about that. but that's a good point <laughs> you know bo and other people were setting up raspberry pi clusters you mm. even see them at southeast linux fest the yeah. clusters of pi set up not for supercomputer applications but to handle no, but we do all the registration on them yeah all the registration and things are done through these clusters so clustering is very uh useful and you see it out in the real world and it does yeah. take a very inexpensive component and make it more powerful so um definitely agree with you there rob and thanks for clarifying yep. that uh, um, with that story there. And anytime you guys have disagreements or thoughts on the show, you can of course head to our discourse forums out there where all the shows get posted and you can talk about them there. You could of course talk to us in telegram group or anything else as well, but I really appreciate you sending this email here. So this goes to show why we love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or a video that may get you incorporated into the show. So no matter how um, strange or new or newbie you think the question might be, send it in and you never know, we may end up having a discussion about it. So uh, first in the news this week, we have some really interesting stuff, though this is going to be one of those buzzword bingo type of articles. Uh, oh, fun. Let me get my bingo board out. <laughs> right. So uh, Mozilla, Intel, Fastly, and Red Hat are the founding members of a new alliance called the Bytecode Alliance. And this is a, an interesting thing because their idea is to create a an organization to, you know, like sort of push the WebAssembly uh, platform into like a bigger range. So like you could have uh, more industries focusing on using WebAssembly and all sorts of different things. So that's the goal of the partnership is to kind of like reinvigorate the initiative built around WebAssembly and kind of push it forward more so. So a lot of people might not know what WebAssembly first is, so let's go ahead and just discuss that. So WebAssembly is essentially a replacement for JavaScript. Uh, the idea is to be able to increase performance and efficiency over JavaScript and allow developers to run code. And it's more like they don't have to run, uh, like they don't have to trust the code in order to run the code. So it's more like a safety thing as well. Uh, but the main thing is that it allows you to run C and C++ code inside of a web engine. So you don't actually have to build specifically for JavaScript. You could build for a regular native application and then run it through WebAssembly. So that's actually pretty interesting. And there's been a lot of different uh, testing environments showing off how WebAssembly can be more efficient and be more powerful and all kinds of stuff. So it's really, really cool that they're doing this, though what exactly they're doing for the alliance itself you know, it's mostly buzzwords, so you kind of have to like, you know, dig through to find all the different pieces and stuff. So, uh, but anyway, so now that you, uh, you know, see that they have like this, we got a better understanding of what WebAssembly is. Uh, they also have like an interesting history with the uh, consortium in like 2015 that was kind of doing something similar, but didn't really fully get, pull, uh, you know, everything where they wanted. So that that consortium was Google, Microsoft, Mozilla, and WebKit. Uh, but they haven't produced much from you know since that time, obviously. And uh, 
you know, it's just an it's an interesting thing because WebAssembly is a really powerful thing, and, and like there's so many examples of WebAssembly being done. Like uh, AutoCAD has their own web version of uh, their AutoCAD s- uh, software running through uh, WebAssembly, and there's also like game engines being uh, demo demo through WebAssembly. It's a really interesting piece of software and technology, but exactly what this alliance really is going to do. We don't know about that yet, but yeah, I mean, this is another example of terrible marketing, I think, in, in Linux and open source world because they create the. I mean, these are some big companies, right? You've got mm-hmm. Mozilla, you have Intel, you have Red Hat, you have Fastly in here, which are all in their own right pretty powerful entities, and then they have a website they create, but the website really doesn't explain much of okay, what are you going to do with this? What does this mean to the average user? It took me a ton of digging to finally figure out what they were attempting to explain here in their notes. And maybe perhaps that's why not having a clear mission statement, your consortium in 2015 failed because you don't have a clear mission statement of what you want to do with it. Mm. Um, So I, I would really encourage them because as I understand it, some people have said that this is going to be a competition in a way to what Microsoft is pushing, what they call Blazor, uh, which does the C code directly into the browser using .NET on WebAssembly. And of course, it's supposed to be a JavaScript replacement as well. And it's open source there. So they're trying to push that technology forward. It looks mm-hmm. like you know Mozilla and everybody is probably afraid of another thing on the web that Microsoft basically would control in essence. So they're trying to do their own thing, but there's only one example anybody's been able to find of this code in action, and that's a program from Google Labs called Squoosh. Now, I played with Squoosh, and I was blown away by it, about how powerful this little tool is for what it does. Now, this is a basic image compression tool where you take very large images that you can load and it compresses them within your browser. This is something that typically in a web, depending on, again, the coder and things, could take a lot of processing. You would expect a big loading bar to come up, loading your image, recompressing the image, and then you wait for a couple minutes on the web while it spins. And that would be the experience you'd be used to on a tool on the web. But this thing was so fast, it was like writing, running a native app, which is essentially what this is trying to do this 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 web assembly code is give you that native like speed and experience on the web michael you're far more uh you utilize this type of technology far more than i do in your job what did you think of squoosh well squoosh specifically was impressive because of how much it can compress i did it really quickly that that's one of the things is like web assembly makes it really quick uh, because it's using basically native code, it's not it's not native code, but it, and it's not as efficient as native code, but it is impressively efficient for you know being a web based application essentially. And the squoosh is impressive because it allowed me to take ninety three percent of the file size off of the file and still have the quality that I wanted to keep. It was like eighty percent the quality of the image but 93% smaller file size. So it goes from like 2.8 megabytes to 203 kilobytes. 
and it did it within seconds. So that is a incredibly cool. useful thing for people who do websites, especially if you want to uh, push out, you know, bit lot of files, or you do like a, a photo gallery or something. You can display the images on it. You have the the big giant files that you're for your storage, and actually have the full size of the image. But then when you put it on the web, you don't need to have those ridiculously huge images for that purpose. So you could have those being displayed in a much smaller thing. So that's a really cool implementation of the WebAssembly, like runtimes and stuff. There are qu- quite a few of these runtime. Uh, projects that are basically using the runtimes but essentially this alliance is just taking different runtimes for different uh, types of devices and all these other things these frameworks and then like kind of putting them together to create like this uh, alliance or consortium of tools to be able to to build stuff on top of it in the future so that's really what its purpose is Mm. so forgive me if the the cynic in me rises to the top but is this another or is this going to be another example of, because let's face it, these, there's some pretty big companies having a go at this back in 2015, and it's not, it's not ready yet. So is this going to be another, oh, we need to replace um, Xorg, so we're going to have Wayland. Uh, is this going to be, oh, we need to replace Java, so we're going to have this WebAssembly, but it never arrives? Um, no, not necessarily, because like WebAssembly already exists, and the technology behind it is already very impressive. And when the terms of like 2015, it wasn't ready to do the thing that they wanted to do. But now we're at a position where we can essentially do the best example is the Citadel uh, game demo from the Unreal Engine for uh, the Epic Games. When they had the Unreal Engine, they created the Citadel demo and they were able, the Mozilla team were able to use WebAssembly to render out and and actually run the Citadel demo inside of the Firefox browser using WebAssembly. Oh, wow. Okay. And it wasn't like, it wasn't as good as core code. It wasn't as efficient. It didn't have as many frames, but the fact that it could do that on a game level was ridiculously impressive when you take out that mm-hmm. and put it into other particular like industries and other things like obviously the games game engines and game demos are going to be the most taxing on a system or taxing on a mm-hmm. technology because they're going to they're trying to do as much as they possibly can to get it the best quality out and the best performance out and the fact that it was even possible to do it like this was like a couple years ago that mozilla was able to do this so we're at a position now where having that applied to applications like AutoCAD and that kind of thing is ridiculously this is cool. This is a push to take all of these very powerful tools and now you have that web application, much like, say, Adobe and others have yeah. tried to do. One of the reasons they like this technology is for pirating, right? They get the, it's much more difficult to pirate a web application than it is very a much, application yeah. you would install on your machine. Um, but this also starts to become a problem in an interesting way, if everybody starts moving to these web-based tools for everything in the digital divide scenario, right? Not everybody has high-speed access in their home. So many people, millions of people don't have internet access at all. Um, so, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because you don't want technology to stop. But at the same time, will this, are we ready yet to really have a bunch of tools created out there that run only on the web is there is is there a lot more time in between before we see this technology really become something? Yeah, we're probably it's not going to be like game changing to everything really quickly or anything, but it has potential to be very powerful because yes, there are pros and cons. Uh, one of the pros would be that no matter what system you had, the application would be able to run because it's just using your browser. 
So as long mm-hmm. as the uh, backend WebAssembly frameworks and stuff are compatible with whatever your system is, the or whatever it compiles on. And what's really cool is that if you look at the um, the listing of all the frameworks and runtimes that they are uh, putting up part of the alliance, uh, the first operating system they mention is Linux. So on every single one of them. So that's very nice. And if you if you look at the direction we're going as a society, right? For a long time, we fought over use my program, not yours, right? Use this software suite, not that software suite. And what we've gone to is instead of trying to control or, or trying to work on the marketing aspect and trying to get people to choose your software based on the merits, instead what we've gone to is try to control the protocols and the standards in which applications are based on and then your application becomes, quote-unquote, the Kleenex of the tissue world, right? And that's to me, that's really terrifying because the companies that are going to be most successful at that are the companies that we want the least influence from, Microsoft, Google, Apple, so on and so forth. Yeah, you're not wrong there. So it, when, when we were talking about this, even though it's not directly related to WebAssembly, but it's a web technology, like, for instance, on the Pinebook Pro, one of the first things that you have to do if you want to watch Netflix and things is run this special patching software script that somebody ran that basically downloads Google Chrome, pulls the wide vine and pepper stuff out of it, and then infuses that into your Chromium session that allows you then to actually play these services. Uh, my family wanted to have Disney Plus on the TV And so my son has a computer in his room and I thought, well, I'll put Disney Plus on there on your computer, your Linux computer, which he runs Pop! OS, the latest version, and can't run Disney Plus. Now, you want to know why? Because they use apparently a DRM level three, which is this restricted DRM level that even no no Linux-based browser apparently has it built in to be able to run this DRM level three that they've put in there. Netflix and Amazon apparently run at DRM level two. So they start putting these restrictions into the software. And when you say something like, well, it's browser-based so everybody can use it, that's not even the case today with this stuff because they basically put their own standards in there that restrict Mm -hmm. certain operating systems from actually running this stuff. And you're right back to square one once again with software not being compatible because we want it Mm -hmm. to only work on Chromebooks. We want it to only work on Chromecast. We want it to only work on Chrome. Uh, These type of things that happen. So when, when these big companies get powerful like this and um, you know, and maybe that's what Mozilla is attempting to do with this consortium is to keep one of these companies like Microsoft from basically getting blazer or something else to become the standard in which they will Mm -hmm. just infuse their restrictions on top of. Yeah, that's well, a good point. It would be nice for, for, for Mozilla to get their own back because we know that Google puts so many little hidden bits of code in their, in their browser that oh, yeah. you don't get the same sort of experience on Mozilla. So to, to have these guys maybe get their own back, I think would be fantastic. Yeah. It's also pretty interesting in the fact that, um, you know, there's the, the really cool thing about WebAssembly is that you can use whatever language you want, uh, you know, in theory, like there's, it does there is not a runtime or compiling for every single language, but they are working on making it so that you have, as long as your browser can run WebAssembly code or WebAssembly compiled programs, it can then, uh, you know, you could use whatever language you want to do it. So that's another really cool thing for developers. They don't have to learn a new thing in order to utilize it. However, there's uh, in the li- in the live ch- the live patron chat, uh, Kabovic says that a really interesting point about how there's could be a negative, um, you know, dis- issue with this by having the code for the compiled applications running in WebAssembly being proprietary. 
because technically while the platform and frameworks are open they don't by you're you're compiling these applications to run in WebAssembly to make it more efficient and by doing so you really can't look at the code and one of the values of the web and JavaScript is that it itself is open automatically so that is an interesting point and I and I definitely don't like the idea that we're going to be going into a proprietary web but or even more so that we already are but there are so many benefits to it as well it's like a you know catch 22 either way there's going to be a negative and a pro and pros and cons but i think the overall having a, an alliance with these companies is a good example because they're all very interested in open source and keeping things as open as possible that this is the this is like the best possible approach i would i would i would want to have WebAssembly because we we definitely want to have WebAssembly because of how powerful it is and how much it can you know improve the web and make it like even if you have applications that are loaded from a server but then once they're loaded they can be used locally on your machine their WebAssembly can do that so there's a lot of potential i just want to know how they're keeping this thing sandboxed because they basically in a lot of their marketing spin have said hey developers can now run untrusted code and that's a very bold statement to throw out there to everyone. That, hey, yeah. now you can go run untrusted code. By the way, when we were talking about DRM, I found this interesting, and I tweeted this out to Disney with their super DRM level, that they made the news also for being the most pirated shows out there. So all that DRM protection accomplished nothing. Zero. No, it's it does. I disagree. I disagree. It accomplishes something major. Here's what it accomplishes. It accomplishes people like you and me going, I'm willing to pay for Disney. I want to pay for Disney. I'm going to watch it on this computer. Oh, I can't. Okay. Now what do I do? Uh, I guess I pirate it. There and, you go. Uh, I guess I'll just watch it that way since I can't watch it legally. The most successful, the most successful curbing of piracy ever in the history of time, in my opinion, is Amazon Music. Amazon made it so easy, so simple, and so cheap to just go to Amazon and spend 99 cents to buy the song you want. You know it's of good quality. You know it's the proper rip. You know it's the actual thing. There's no weird encoding things. There's no weird ID3 tags. There's no misspelling. All of that stuff is right. And then they release it, and anybody can just do it. There's no DRM. You can just download it. You play it on whatever player you want. You give copies to your friends if you want. It just doesn't matter. Overnight, it seems, I don't hear anybody pirating music anymore. They just go to Amazon and buy it. Why? Because it's mm -hmm. simple, it's easy, and it doesn't restrict people. And so if you want to ensure people pirate your content, then wrap it up in as much DRM as possible. Make it as difficult and, and challenging yeah. for people to do it as humanly possible. And you'll make sure that you never you know, alleviate the, the DRM thing. So Povox says in the same way JavaScript engine is sandbox, it, it does give the ability to execute anything lower than the browser and you still don't have direct access to the file system. So in, in that same case, though, people always find ways to exploit this stuff. And so, like I said, I still find it, uh, I, and I don't understand uh, admittedly all the technology behind it, very bold to go out there and say, hey, you can go run whatever code you want and untrusted whatnot on your main machines and it's going to be fine with this because I'm certain Without a doubt, somebody will find some vulnerability somewhere within this. To mm -hmm. Moving on to software news, Caden Live 19.08.3 has been released. So Caden Live is out with a new point release that addresses some bugs in the popular open source video editor. So we're going to cover some of the uh, fixes that are included here. Uh, and this is where I'll probably hand over to Michael because he's got the most experience. But is this going to be one that I've been hearing a lot of chatter in, in, in a lot of the Telegram groups that I'm in 
that Caden Live has been blowing up on a lot of people and it just keeps crashing and they've been you know, spending hours trying to do all of their work and then all of a sudden, oof, and they're now trying to find other things. Is this going to be a little saviour or is this more like a paper cut release? It's mostly, I, I don't even think, uh, I haven't had any experience of it, of it blowing up. But like if, a, if an application crashes, oh, really? yeah, if your application crashes, one of the things that's great about Caden Live is that it has, it has, uh, restoring. So if your system, cra- if your uh, Kaden, as long as your system doesn't crash, but if Kaden Live crashes and you reopen Kaden Live, it'll ask you, do you want to restore the one you were working on? And it will, because it saves the history automatically for you because of that restore feature. So I don't even think that's really that big of an issue because they have those th- solutions. However, if you just, you know, consistently save your document, it doesn't really matter if, there, if it does crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in terms of like most of this stuff is to improve its like compiling f- uh, f- uh, performance, the fix some some different composition stuff that's broken, you know, fixing things that are uh, issues on like track layout and you know just fixing overall you know bug fixes and paper cut stuff because this is basically a minor update, but uh, Caden Live has is constantly doing these types of things. Uh, but that's one mm-hmm. of the reasons I wanted to give attention to Caden Live is because they have. Like they do a, the the KDE release every like along with the rest of the stack every like six months or so, but they also keep up to date with doing uh, bug fixes and pushing out different things. And I talked to uh, just recently, like three four days ago, I talked to the uh, developers for Caden Live about a particular feature that I wish they had, and then they told me how like they they, they asked me to do, like submit like a bug report or issue or whatever. And then they start working on it. And it's not, I don't think it's available in this particular release. I don't think so. Cause it, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was right after that it came out, but they have uh, like dailies and betas that they come out and they push versions and, and new features and stuff really quickly within a few days or weeks when I, you know, request them to do something. And in the meantime of the bug not being there, they actually showed me how I could do it by editing the XML code, which is not necessarily ideal for everybody, but the fact that they were mm-hmm. like, Hey, we, we know what you want to do. Here's the way to do it. Well, you don't have to wait for us to put it in the application. Like that's a really awesome thing that, you know, they're doing and they're very attentive to that. So it's just, I just wanted to, you know, give a, attention to that because getting live is a fantastic open source video editor. Zep's not wrong here though, from the, the aspect that I've noticed a lot of people in, in some of the circles that, I run in anyways on Twitter and other things beating up on Caden live in the last few weeks. And it's, it's interesting because when I started with Linux, I remember finding Caden live and going, okay, finally I can do my videos, but people were like, Oh, good luck. It's going to crash on you constantly. And they weren't wrong, but it was, you could deal with it, but it was a frustration, but then Mm -hmm. Caden live kind of did some pushes and it seemed that it's been cleaned up for a long time. Now you could pretty much, run Caden live and I would rarely ever have a situation where I had to even use the restore feature. But to your point, Michael, if it did crash, I could just do the restore feature and I was back up with my files where my edits left off and I was good to go. And and by the way, this happens in nearly every video editor out there as well. Right. So let's not pretend that the well, other I mean, ones the, the crashing the crashing happens in every video editor. Having restore features not necessarily every editor has that. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, they've done some, but there is something going on That's out there with Caden Live that has caused people to come back on this train, and maybe mm-hmm. it's just the resurgence of people talking about Caden Live or something else. But what made me frustrated was seeing so many people recommending DaVinci again, because that's one that I've truly had that is so the, many problems with. 
um, the some of the worst software. Now you can, if you stick with a very specific distro, you might be able to run it and have fine. I've had heard people say I run it and I've never have an issue. Um, but my experience with DaVinci has been nothing short of complete misery and supporting it when people talk about it is complete misery because its installation is completely inconsistent, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't install on most people's machines. And literally, if you go on YouTube and talk about and look at videos for why Linux isn't ready to take on the desktop, almost nearly always. every single one of them is DaVinci Resolve that they end up talking about these new people trying to come to Linux saying, how can you guys say that it's ready for the desktop when you can't, you know, I'm trying to use this editing suite. Whereas something like Lightworks, if you want that powerful proprietary works everywhere, I don't have any issues with it. Very expensive tool, of course, so it's not for everybody. But again, if you want to go professional, Lightworks. If you're just amateur or doing YouTube and things, Caden Live are perfect options for you. Well, the problem is that uh, Re Resolve has a free version, and that's why they try Resolve. But like the, the worst thing is that Resolve says that they have Linux support, but they have like CentOS Red Hat support, and that's pretty much it. And yeah. but they promote it as Linux support, and that's like, well, most people are not going to be using Red Hat or CentOS as their distribution for the desktop. That's just ridiculous. So that it's really weird that they promote it the way, and it's it's mostly DaVinci Resolve's fault for not using something like a Snap or Flatpak or AppImage to push it out, and they use their own special binary S, uh, sh file, like it's a script. That and they, I've sent them dozens of feed. Of, of emails and feedback to DaVinci developers to say, please, yeah. you are, you're literally hurting the community with your software. Yeah. Please look at a universal package or something to make your installer and they never respond. Yeah, I would kind of rather it not be on the platform rather than being so buggy on the platform that it makes people just mock. It seems to be the first so. one people know about, so yeah. So Noah has had a little bit of an emergency. Something crashed. I think it was one of his Windows servers that he supports out there or something along those lines. But thankfully, we pulled in Dark One literally last second. Um, and when I mean last second, I mean, oh my gosh, I'm going through Telegram looking for someone who's done the show before that can jump in last second, understands the flow, could do that. And Dark One was kind enough to join us here so that we have a fourth person, a fourth perspective on here. Dark One, Dude, thank you so much for joining us last second. Uh, not a problem. I always enjoy being on the show, guys. Awesome. Wonderful. Good man. Next up in the news, we have something interesting that speaks to my heart. Uh, as many of you know, I've been in telecom for a long time. I have seen from the, you know, the back door of what has gone on in the telecom world, and it's not very pretty. And a lot of this information that I have heard of or knew was going on about privacy and security on phone and mobile devices is finally coming out into the public eye. And it seems like every single week there is more information about things happening, uh, pieces of your phone that's tracking you, grabbing data on you, apps that are taking data that are, are pulling more information than their terms and conditions said they were. All of these things are finally coming to light to individuals and privacy is becoming a big deal. Now, we've talked a lot about the Pine phone that's coming out and we've also talked about the Librem 5 phone that is coming out. But there's another one that has popped on to the radar known as Vala. Now, this is competition for this privacy-friendly open source device and I'm so happy that multiple companies are starting to enter into this arena because we need this desperately 
in our, for our phones. We Most of us have more private information by a lot on our phone than we have anywhere else. Probably anywhere else, period. Your phone has more information on it than any other device. So where would you want privacy more than your phone itself? And we have accepted for far too long the crappy options that are out there. So Vala is a company founded by Dr. Jorg Warzer, an experienced entrepreneur with 20 years of experience in machine learning, development, and AI. So he has a lot of achievements behind him. Um, And this Vala phone is going to come with Nemo Mobile by default. So kind of their own take on a mobile OS that's based on the Android open source project specifically. The other thing that made me interested in this, because a lot of people can talk about, oh yeah, I'm creating a privacy-based device. I mean, we've all seen Apple's advertisement out there, right? That they're the privacy company. So just because you say it, does it make it so? So obviously more research and information as this company unfolds and we get to learn more about what they're doing. We'll be, we'll, we're going to wait there with bated breath to hope that this is that they're going to deliver exactly what they're saying, but they said they are also going to support Ubuntu Touch on this device by default. Nice. And that makes me pretty happy to hear because mm-hmm. Ubuntu Touch is probably one of the more complete mobile OSs out there as an option for people to use. We've all done videos. I know Michael's used it. I've used it. Zeb, you've used one. I don't know, Dark One, have you used the Ubuntu Touch device yet? A little bit. Um, not a whole lot. Mostly on an older uh, OnePlus One. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's good. You can see the makings of something really special there if they continue to get the support and things that they need. And they do that with a very small development team. But as all this hardware starts coming out to support Ubuntu Touch, we can expect that likely the support with this OS uh, would increase as well. Um, so this device is in the prototype stage. So again, we don't know everything about it, but it is boasting a cost of around 360 euro. So quite a bit more expensive than the Pine phone, but less than the Librem 5, I uh, I believe. Mm. Um, It has modest hardware, like a 6.3 inch screen, eight core processor, dual cameras, wireless charging. So these are a lot of conveniences that you'll find in your modern phones that this is gonna include a 5,000 milliamp battery, a fingerprint and face ID scanner, along with USB-C, 4G LTE, voice over LTE, and voice over Wi-Fi capabilities built into the phone. So what's interesting to me about this is it has a lot of the modern technologies that we expect in the device that they're building in here for a very reasonable price for phones, especially at the Mm. point where, uh, what is the new Samsung, like $1,900 for their flip phone or some stupid thing? Look how how crazy the industry has gone. When we we think of modest hardware as a 6.3 inch screen, I mean, if you you go back, five or six years, that would be classed as humongous, almost a, a fablet. And, but now it's modest hardware. I think this looks absolutely great. Yeah. So on default, Vola All S will also have uh, anonymous app store with no Google apps or play integration in a pre-configured VPN, which is through hide.me, which I had not heard of before. Same. But there are 10 billion different VPNs out there, so I'm not surprised I haven't heard of it. Um, but it's interesting that they're looking at adding a pre-configured VPN into the device. And mm-hmm. then also they're going to allow you to get Android apps via an anonymous app store without having to have the Google Play integration. At least that's what they're claiming or the Google Play integration into your device. So this starts to, if this is the case and they can do this in a sandboxed manner, potentially, 
this would help fill that gap in between one of the big problems with people switching to a device like this, a privacy-centric device is there's no apps. You're not going to have your banking apps that you may need, your credit card apps, your you know, apps for your social site, all that stuff. It's, it's difficult in these OSs that are being built when you have the foundations of Google and Apple have millions of apps over decades of work being done on them to get somebody to create their app for your device. But mm-hmm. if you can sideload those apps, and again, in a, in a manner in which you're not using the Google integration, that's a pretty interesting option mm. that they have there. I think it's gonna be very limited though, of like what kind of apps they can have because any app that requires this play services will probably not work. Yeah, so I, I, now I wonder what Google's technique will be to, if, as more companies kind of try to do this sideloading thing, because I, I believe even Ubuntu Touch, there's a tool that you can use to sideload some Android yeah. apps, right? It's uh, experimental, but yeah, it's called Anbox, so you can do it. Yeah, Anbox. So, I mean, I think Google probably will react and make it nearly impossible at some point for people to even do this. But at the time being, it may provide an interim solution there. Um, They promise not to collect data or track or do any statistical grabbing at all. Of course, as long as they remain open source and we can validate that, then that could be a trusted statement. Uh, They're raising funds for this device on Kickstarter. They have a very modest goal of $385,000. They've raised $11,000 at the time that I looked at it. It's probably more at this point, Um, but they're going to have a lot of features on this device. Your basic phone features, contacts, call people, compose emails, short messages, web search, uh, searching on your device, reminders, calendar events, plan your routes, create notes, all of the basic things covered in this device. So I'm interested. I'm watching suspicious because I've never heard of any of these people or what mm-hmm. they've done in the past, but I'm just very excited that we have people interested in developing hardware like this. Do we know how long the Kickstarter's been going for? They have like 20-something days left. Oh, okay. Because that's a little bit... It must be a bit depressing for them where they wanted to raise like over 300000 and they've only got eleven. Well, there's... It's interesting because... Do you know about it or...? Well, so the, the, there's a couple problems with this kickstarter and with the phone in general i'm really interested in it because like they have like a lot of the stuff they're displaying is really cool ideas like they have like this uh custom launch panel thing where that you can do everything from one quick access point and you can Mm -hmm. you know create uh you could search for contacts you can go to the web you can do all kinds of stuff from this one interface which is really interesting as a concept as a concept but there's a few problems with the vola phone uh, Kickstarter, for example, the phone is not available in the U.S. and they don't have they they say they're working on the F- FTC or FCC compliance to get it to be available in the U.S. But it was easier to do the EU first, which has been shown that there's a lot of uh, companies that have said that the e- getting certified in EU is a lot easier than the U.S. So that's why they don't have it yet. But I think that's one of the things that hurt their Kickstarter campaign is because a significant portion of the uh, the the economy of people interested in the smartphones market aren't available to get it. So it just mm-hmm. kind of makes, it takes the percent, their potential out a lot, but that's, that's like the biggest issue that they have. There's a lot of cool concepts and they did say that even if they don't meet their, their Kickstarter campaign, that they're going to be continuing to work on the Volophone. So that's really good to know. But uh, mm. I think that's the, that's the issue is like when I saw this, I was like, oh, this is really cool. I can't like all the specs look cool. Like they're really powerful. Like the price is super reasonable and I can't have it. So 
Yeah, it looks like they're coming up against red tape because they're waiting for FCC certification or something. Right, but I think the the problem is that if they 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 should have waited until they got everything ready to go because at this Mm -hmm. point it seems like they're promoting a thing that's going to be really awesome, but you can't like certain parts of the world can't have it. Like it's, I'm pretty sure it's. I'm not sure if if Canada is is included in this situation right now or not, or if it's just the U.S. That's a significant amount of people that are not available to Mm -hmm. get the phone. And a lot of the promotion of it would be related to that market as well. So yeah. that could be why one they're not the getting FAQ, One of the FAQ is, why is it only available in Europe? And it's obviously got to do with this various certification that you yes. need by standards around the world. So, yeah. Um, I, th- actually, I, just, I just think that's why they're not getting as much attention and as much um, backing hmm. is because of that. Uh, situation not necessarily saying that the phone is bad for like the phone looks really awesome and i do really want to get it but but i'm also really interested in situations like this because obviously if they can't get anywhere near their three hundred and eighty-five thousand dollar goal what happens to the people who've already donated do they get their money back or has it already been spent in what you're doing well i think the way that i don't think that kickstarter offers the option to take the money without fully completing the campaign so I'm pretty sure everybody gets their money back if they don't meet the campaign. Right, gotcha. But I, I, that that could be that could be changed by Kickstarter, but I'm pretty sure that's how they structure it. Quite a big risk then uh, on behalf of this particular organization, hoping to get four hundred thousand dollars, but just out of Europe. It's a, yeah, it's interesting because you know it's a lot of money to risk for people as well. You know, to drop four hundred dollars on something where you, at least in my case, never heard of the company. Uh, the individual sounds like they've accomplished a lot in their life, but I've never heard of them either. And they don't have a track record of any hardware that I can see prior to this to make me go, okay, well, they're definitely going to see this to fruition. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. they've come into a Kickstarter campaign, a, a period of time where people are very burnt out on the fact that a lot of people start these and then never finish them. Right. And yep. so all of that coupled together is really a difficult thing to sell. Now, they they did put some real images of prototypes of what the device could look like and tried to show that it's really there. But again, we've seen that in the past and we've seen failures happen. So I hope they do. Well, in this this case, they actually do because they're basing it so uh, on Android because Nemo is, is an Android thing. It's because they're basing it on Android. It makes it a lot easier for them to create a phone rather than the full Linux thing that the Pine and the Librem are doing. So mm-hmm. that does make it make it more sense that they could have a, a phone that's more easily uh, built. And they ha- their prototypes, are, unlike other campaigns where they're just showing photos, they actually do have working videos, ex- like just demonstrating how it works and everything. So it does exist, but they're you know, they they I think that the same. I agree with the whole not knowing who this company is, not knowing who's behind it, has another another issue of them uh, trying to get the money this way. And also the timing of it is a little awkward too, because you know people, as you said, people are burnt out on like Kickstarters in general, but like phone-based Kickstarters have been done. They've been doing. There's like now we have the 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 Librem is the only one that's pretty much ever like has the potential of being existing, whereas the other phone-based things ne- like didn't come up to like didn't even become a thing. Like maybe like the Fairphone or something. Not, I'm not sure if that was a Kickstarter or not, but like there's so many examples of technology campaigns and Kickstarter, Indiegogo and stuff that got people excited and then just fizzled out yeah. or never even fizzled existed. Out, yeah. You know, And $400 is a lot to throw up there and 
uh, in a wish and a dream. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I'm just excited that more people are starting to see that, hey, there's a market here. There's enough of a market oh, yeah. that they're trying to launch companies around it. And whether this one becomes successful or not, I think that certainly people are starting to pay attention to their privacy in such a way that other people are looking to form companies to take it, it, advantage of that in a good way, hopefully, mm-hmm. of getting people hardware and software that they can trust. Right. And even if it isn't successful, and as I said, we will hope it is, it may show other organizations the level at which they need to start, because just starting in Europe obviously isn't working. You've got to go the whole globe right. um, and try and get all of your eggs ready and then say, right, now we're ready to move out. Let's see if we can get some financing behind this. But, yeah, right. all the best. Yep. Up next in the show is a topic that Zeb cannot wait to talk about because he loves these kinds of things, and that <laughs> is the Google Project Nightingale. And this is a new thing from Google with a secret project called Nightingale. And this is a project to gather millions of Americans' health data, like doctor diagnosis, hospitalization records, lab results, and other health history things. So with this amount, they basically have your entire medical history at their disposal and they're in their database so they can probably sell that for advertising purposes. And it is reported that 150 Google employees have access to this information currently. And in t- tens of millions of records have already been uh, secured by a company called Ascension. Okay, that's that sounds such a, like a sci-fi villain, uh, doesn't group. it? Yes. Yeah. Super, super, like very much like that's that, that's as soon as Ascension I saw it. And yeah. Skynet have merged. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So they are stating the move is completely compliant with HIPAA. Okay, sure. And other regulations, and the data will only be used for narrow purposes. So like. HIPAA implies that this is for hospitals to have the data that they could share between other hospitals and other doctors and stuff like that. Google, Ooh. not a hospital. How is this compliant? Um, so anyway, this is all being done without any permission from the patients or the doctors. So that is just completely egregious. You don't get a choice. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I just don't get how something like this can come to fruition. So first of all, how dare they use Florence Nightingale's name for such a nefarious product. Yeah. It's just wrong on so many levels. Surely there are laws to states. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's laws in the UK that only doctors and hospitals can have access to your patient data. Even, even if an insurance company that's going to be paying out on your health insurance, all they get as far as I understand, is a nod from your doctor. Yes, he is suffering. Yes, he's had to pay out this. Please pay out on his insurance. Surely they can't be given access to every single medical record that you've got in that doctor's, you know, because someone like me, I've been going to the doctors for 50, 59, 60 years. So how dare they think that they can use all of that information? So why aren't why aren't governments stopping this? I'm just... Well, there is an investigation that has kicked off on this, but I'm going to give you their reasoning behind this, Zeb, which is going to make you feel all warm inside. Number one, (laughs) they promise they're not going to sell this to anybody else. Okay, so they promise. So that that should set you uh, calm right there to know that they're not going to sell it. And number two is their goal is to create an AI powered software to help patients with their medical care 
So basically, they're taking all of this information that they didn't ask if they could have from 100 million of, uh, of, of people around the world, of the United States, and they're basically going to siphon through that data and allow AI to solve all of your medical problems out there and, and create new treatments and things that could help you. Um, so that is how they're coming about it. They're saying, hey, we're never going to sell this and all this. But how many times, let's say all of that is true. How many times has a company had those data records stolen, you know, uh, information like that left out on databases that were unsecured and things where nefarious purposes happened regardless of what their intent was. And this is supposed to be protected, but apparently there is a little clause in HIPAA that says that as long as it is used for uh, something based on a patient's health care, improving their health care, that they can give these records out. But it and, is and, and for me, therein, therein lies the problem. This is not to help improve their health care. This, for me, is just another out that the insurance companies can give for, for not paying out for your health care. This is going to be, oh, but when you was five years old and you fell over and scraped your knee, you never had a, uh, an injection against rabies or something. So therefore, your whole policy is void. Yep. Really, this is just a hideous example of collection of your data. And unfortunately for our generation, it's too late. They've got everything they could ever possibly want. But this makes me even more mad now to think that we have got to fight for our children and our grandchildren and our grandchildren's children to stop this nonsense happening. This is just horrific, really mm -hmm. horrific. I agree with you, Zeb. I think the fact that these guys, Ryan, you may, you make the the sarcastic response of like they promised never to sell the data um you know kind of like they said they never like targeted advertised kids with uh, chromebooks at school right right exactly I, like i we can't take these companies at their words the only way to take these companies at their words is if they're legislated into their word and right. without without any stupid little HIPAA clauses that, to get them out of it. But Matt, the, their motto think... their motto at Google is don't be, oh wait, never mind, they got rid of the don't be evil. It's just totally <laughs> evil as they want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But my, another question I've got is, no disrespect to Ascension, they may be a very, very good company, but who are they? Does anybody know who they are? Does anybody know how secure their servers are? Yeah, they're sci-fi villains. We were talking another... about that. <laughs> <laughs> are they going to be another sort of like Cambridge Analytics that Facebook said they had all the information and that, you know, we all know what went wrong, wrong with that particular episode. So I just don't get how politicians can allow this sort of nonsense to go on. No, it's shocking. And everybody should be enraged about this and writing their politicians about this and stop using Google products because of this type of stuff here yeah. it continues to go on because honestly, that's the only message that they're going to get. Now, other companies like Amazon, Apple, and big tech have been all looking to get into this very lucrative business of healthcare, right? We know that there's just billions and billions of dollars just mm -hmm. pouring out from being able to um, get in, get into the healthcare system in some form or fashion. But this is the only one I've seen to date in which they're taking their entire medical history of people and putting it into massive databases and then giving access to their employees to go through that 
and I don't care what nonsense they come up with of, oh, we, we anonymized it at some point, so they can't see who it is and all of that. We know where this goes. This is exactly what I said before, that every time your privacy is taken away, it's going to be because of some way that they're going to help you or some way to keep you secure. And it always starts out with a positive thing. Like, who doesn't want to keep children safe on the internet? Okay, have some of my privacy. Who doesn't want to stop terrorists? Here, have some more of my privacy. And then and then they take that and they go to the next level with it. Because once Google gets away with it, maybe it won't be Google. It's the next company that comes in and says, well, they got away with that. So what if we did this? But this, but this is the one example of they can't anonymize the data to protect you. Because the whole point of this thing is to help you. So yeah. it's going to be your data that gets through to the end user who wants it because, of course, they're going to make sure that you get the right type of drugs at the right level at the cheapest possible price. Yeah. yeah like that's going to ever happen. This is for health companies to deal with. And, and you know, I, I believe it was Red Hat that open sourced some of their AI tech that could be used in the healthcare industry. But notice Red Hat didn't say, hey, we're going to collect a bunch of those records ourselves and run it through AI. They open sourced the code. So those in the healthcare industry that already have access and the rights to that information could implement it within their systems and use it. Mm. This this is this is bad on every front. Yeah. Well, Ryan, and and to your point, the the um, Apple isn't much farther behind on this though. What's what's the biggest selling point of the Apple Watch? Well, it's yeah, the- but that that is interesting because you're you're not wrong. But at the same time, there's been no information that I've seen of them gathering mass amounts of millions of records of people's entire medical history, they actually are working with the Heart Association and other major labs and research centers that are sending them data to say, look for this, these type of rhythmic issues in your heart with your watch to let people know they're about to have a heart attack or something. And for the most part, if you look into what Apple actually is grabbing and sending back to home base, most of that, a lot of their data elements like location data and things stay locally on your device. They're not sent back to the home base of Apple. So I would actually trust Apple far more. No, 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 no. I totally, uh, this bad all around. I'm just saying, what we're slowly doing though is our health data is becoming a new product. Yeah. That, that's yeah. my point. It doesn't matter if it's Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, right. take, take your bank. That, yeah. that is the new honeypot of money as opposed to targeted advertising. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, Google, if you're listening, please send um, an extra dose of blood pressure pills to my doctor because I'm going to need them after this. <laughs> <laughs> they already knew that and they've sent them ahead of time. So let's move on now to a subject which um, is a better topic, but can also be just as frustrating. If Linux feels slower, that's because it is. Now, our friend over at Pharonix has been doing um, a lot of benchmarks, and with all the advancements going into the kernel, certainly things are getting faster, you might think. Well, according to Pharonix, who ran some benchmarks um, from the kernels ranging from 4.16 to the current 5.4, that's not the case at all. At least, not, oh, here we go, Ryan, at least not if you are running an Intel CPU. Yeah. So, (laughs) Pharonix ran its suite of tests from all of the kernels and found 4.16 took first place 35% of the time. Exactly why these things are getting slower isn't fully known yet, 
But the fact that this is happening um, and lots of speculation since these tests were run on Intel was that this has to do with all the mitigations that are that are building up and building up. Oh, wait a minute. There's more. Zombieland has reared its ugly head. And we've got even further mitigations. So before I hand it over to you guys, I will add the caveat. Who has been attacked by these mitigations? I guarantee you, you could, if you're running a home computer and you turn off this mitigating protection, you'll be fine. It's people running servers and who have sensitive data that need to protect themselves. Because I have not heard of a single person being attacked. Whether you hear it or not doesn't mean that you should remove it. Like, there's certain pieces of the mitigations. Like, for example, if you remove Spectre mitigation, you could be drive-by JavaScript infected on a web a website. So removing certain mitigations would be a bad idea. Uh, it depends on what exactly you need. Uh, I think the best approach to it would be to remove your Intel chip and go to an AMD chip. and you're, you're, <laughs> so. Which Deb doesn't have that problem because he's on the Threadripper. I'm right? on the Threadripper, yeah, but that's that, it's still the, the, the principle of I've yet to hear of somebody who has been attacked. Well, the whole point of these mitigations is because they're already available. As soon as they come up with something, they're, they're mini mm -hmm. the mitigations yeah. are being built for that purpose. So you like if, if someone is attacked by these things, they are catastrophic attacks. So if they were to just wait until think somebody was, was affected by it, it would be a very bad effect uh, being affected I'm not by this. saying don't, don't protect people, but I'm just saying not everybody needs to be protected, I don't think. But then that's maybe just my unprofessional, noob, non-technical opinion. Well, but it depends on the attack because some of these do require somebody to have physical access to your machine. They require a lot of work in there. But again, think about your medical records sitting out there now in Google Shop and they decide not to put these mitigations in because of speed issues. And now uh, somebody has executed something that, by the way, even if they encrypt the data, um, some of these attacks are able to work around encryption to still get mm. to the data because apparently it's, it's, it's a matter of getting the keys within the lower levels of memory that they can still steal out of your system. And that's why I said it's in, it was important for the home user. If you're a business, yeah. you better be running every single piece of security you can get hold of, yeah. But I, I do think it's interesting. Now, to be fair, Pharonix is going to run these tests on AMD for the kernels. Uh, they didn't at this point to see if this same problem is happening. So we don't know if this is a physical CPU issue. Mm -hmm. People are speculating that the reason why, since um, 4.16, that the computers are getting slower and slower in the benchmarks overall is because of the fact that he ran this on an Intel. And so in a lot of the comments section, they're saying, hey, can you try the same thing on AMD? We may very well find AMD is getting slower with things as well, although I doubt it because it seems like AMD is always behind in drivers and it takes them six months to get the right drivers to work with their hardware. So at this point, we should probably be running at optimum speeds <laughs> for AMD, um, uh, with, with everything that's been out. So believe me, they both have their issues, but I do find it interesting that the later the kernel here um, doesn't necessarily mean more speed. And certainly with these additional mitigations that Intel has already put into place, I believe Red Hat patched it already uh, this week and other distros are patching for this zombie land version two, that you're even going to have more um, speed impacts regardless if it's related to the kernel situation or not. So mm -hmm. this, is, this is bad all the way around. And the only way to permanently fix it, because Intel has said this, that everything they've done up to this point 
is basically a mitigation to make the attack vector smaller, not to fix these mm-hmm. issues from meltdown inspector and, and all of this. Yeah, because it's it's a physical hardware issue. It's a mm. die, it's an issue with the dies and stuff that they use to make these and the like x86 as a whole. So again, a question for you guys: the, all these mitigations mm. that are being built into the kernel now. If you have an AMD chip, you're not going to be affected. But would that mitigation, because it's in the kernel, still slow you down? Or does those mitigations only come into force when it goes, oh, I've got an Intel kernel. I better be running all of these. Or I've got an Intel chip, rather. I better be running all these. How does those mitigations actually work? Does it slow down every machine or just Intel machines? Yeah, it's just going to be the instruction set specific to Intel for most of these. Now, I believe right. one of them, and I don't recall which one, did affect AMD. Was it Spectre, Spectre. or Meltdown? Spectre. Yeah. I think there's um, something so, else that also does, but it, Spectre is the main one that does. The, Spectre affects everything, all all yeah. the hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the majority of these issues are Intel based because Intel had um, like they basically mm-hmm. just you know they just cut corners everywhere, and AMD basically saw that this t- technique was an issue, so they did it. They basically preemptively mitigated it in the hardware, and that's why mm. it doesn't have that, that an issue. So because now Intel is just now getting to doing it, that we have many years to come to before we actually have solutions on the hardware side. At least for Intel. I mean, Intel's behind the ball uh, since Core 2 Duo days. I mean, it, it, with AMD going to Zen, that was their whole redesign and rebrand and everything else. So a lot of this stuff doesn't affect them as much as it does Intel. Yeah. Mm. So AMD reacted quite quickly, and it possibly just happened as they were going to be retooling anyway, if that's the right word. So, how long has these mitigations been known? Not, I don't mean from 1945 when they first designed it, because I knew it was going to be all uh, wrong then. Mm -hmm. But when it first came to the headlights, what was this, four or five years ago? I think it was less than that, actually. I think it was like three years ago. Three years ago. So how long is it going to be before Intel wakes up and goes, you know what, let's, give, let's put the Intel 10 out there and then start working on the Intel 11 without these mitigations? Or is it just going to cost billions? It depends. You know, there, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there that some of these mitigations were put into place for certain reasons. I personally don't believe that. I just believe that Intel has not refreshed their um, design, their, their labs and their, in their um the design layout for the next gen They're, they've been trying since 2014 is it or even earlier to get to the 10 nanometer where and they just can't get it to work um so and, and they haven't released it so once they probably do an entire refresh if these things still exist i'm going to call conspiracy theories true if mm-hmm. they redo their whole infrastructure and line up and these issues go away, then I'm going to say likely this was just a situation in which they're trying to move to this new architecture. Um, obviously for Intel, it, you know, they're just so massive and they have so many specialty facilities producing these dyes in the silicone that you know, being able to just instantly stop and do a redesign on their current generation would cost them insane amounts of money it's easier to mitigate it in software for the time being uh than to rebuild their entire infrastructure so hopefully the next gen intels that come out i i would guess we're going to see 10 nanometer at the least from intel next year i would hope 
that we would see 10 nanometer from Intel, that those would not have these mitigations in place. Yeah, we also have messages from uh, the kernel team. I'm pretty sure Greg Cage and Linus have come out and said that there's they would be shocked if there was not more of these being reported in the next couple of years. Like they basically expect at least three to four more guaranteed. And the naming of this particular one is so perfect because it's called zombie load and they already mitigated it once, but it had to rise from the dead again to have another version. (laughs) So, yep. So interesting stuff. If you've noticed your PC getting a little slower, likely is, um, but I will be very interested in watching for Pharonix to do these same tests on AMD just to see the results there. Absolutely. But if you're an Intel fan, you want to wait for that refresh before you spend any money upgrading because right now you've got a lot of mitigation stuff slowing you down. Mm-hmm. And what could be a really simple, easy test, and I might actually try and do it, and I'll, and I'll speak to um, Cubicle Nate about this, is within OpenSUSE, they have a section of YAST where you can go in and turn mitigation off, yeah. okay? So I'm wondering, set up one with it on and one with it off and then run some very simple basic tests, and does it make a difference to the speed of the machine? Well, that would be fascinating. Yeah, this, this, and this, is, this would be on AMD, not Intel. So, yeah, I might, I might give that a whirl and have a chat with uh, Cubicle Nate and work out how we can do that, and then what you might have to help, Ryan, as to what test suite I can run to get these benchmarks. Would Geek would Geekbench do it? Would Geekbench be- would be a good one. I think you got to try a lot of different types of uh, in Blender and things applications because I understand that some of the mitigations don't affect every single aspect of right. your machine. So mm-hmm. there it's are also only certain ver- varies massively, like three percent to thirty-five percent. Yeah. So right. you'd want to do like a Blender uh, rendering. You'd probably want to try Geekbench. And what's the one you gave me, Dark One, that is so fantastic? Uh, Unigen. Unigen, yeah. I would run some Unigen. Unigen. All right, yeah. Cool. Sounds like a plan. Well, I'm so happy you're here, Dark One, to talk about this stuff because Zeb doesn't have appreciation for pixel games. And this is this is shocking. It shocked the world literally when it came out. It was all over the news. Every major news agency was talking about it. How could somebody not like pixelated games? But this one is one of those pixelated games that everyone on the planet should love. It's one of the most well-esteemed, beloved franchises from an indie developer in recent history, and it's called Shovel Knight. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this one, Dark One? Yes, I have. Uh, Zeb, why don't you like, to, like, like the pixelated art? Like, it, There's so much to love about it. My um, <laughs> blood pressure has already gone through the roof once this show, so I'm going to refrain from rising to the bait on this one. <laughs> so Shovel Knight has a has some new releases out for it, some expansion packs, King of Cards and Shovel Knight Showdown. And the reason why we're highlighting, of course, is this is an extremely popular game. 8,000 people have rated it overwhelmingly positive, to mm-hmm. give you an example of how beloved this particular game is. It's made by Yacht Club Games, and they are bringing all of the expansion packs to Linux. We already had Shovel Knight, but they're bringing the expansion packs as well. So starting December 10th, just in time for the holidays, we get these two expansion packs, and they sound really cool. And I have played Shovel Knight. It is such a fun game. It's a silly concept. You literally are playing a knight with a shovel, but it is a very fun 
game um, and has a great soundtrack and all the nostalgia and fantastic gameplay that you can expect from a game like this. So in King of Cards, you get four new worlds, 30 new courses, new weapons, feats, challenges, all of that stuff. So basically expanding your core gameplay that you're used to already. But then in the showdown expansion, you get a story mode and multiplayer fighting. So this is a situation where maybe the next gaming on Linux night, we might be doing some shovel night action. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, yeah. Zeb, you're going to have to. What, Zeb, don't you shake your head? (laughs) Uh, Zeb, you don't get to shake your head and weasel your way out of that one. Yeah. Oh, I do. Have you played shovel night, Zeb? I just spent 30 seconds looking at it and wish I hadn't. No, it's just. (laughs) How dare you? It's just not for me. I didn't like those games when I was 10 trying to play them on me. BBC Micro. So why should I play them when I'm 60 on on my on my AMD Threadripper? No, thank you. When no. I was on Linux for everyone, um, he asked. It's because you know he was asking about games and before Proton came out, how did I adjust to being on Linux and did I dual boot and all that stuff? And I said, well, you know, I stopped the dual booting at a certain point, and I just ended up finding different style of games that I loved. And indie games were always, you know. Uh, available on Linux natively before Proton again released and opened up so many more options. And Shovel Knight, when he asked the next question, which was, what was one indie game you would recommend to get people into that genre? Shovel Knight is at the top of my list there. It's just such a fun little game there um, to check out. So if you're not like Zeb, his, you know, he runs an NVIDIA card. He can't really handle the graphics. But <laughs> if, if you're not like Zeb and you love this style of game or you maybe you're not even into gaming, this would be a good game that I think anybody could get out there and play and would probably enjoy. And it gets quite challenging. The boss modes and things out there are quite incredible. So yeah. um, most importantly, thank you to Yacht Club Games for continuing to support Linux natively. Absolutely. It's kind of interesting how the, we can get so many games that are in the indie space Versus the AAA games are like, well, we don't have enough people to develop for Linux, but all of these like one people developers and all these, <laughs> it's like maybe four or five people developer companies have the ability to do it somehow, you know? Yeah. But so especially thank you to Yacht Club for doing it because this, this Shovel Knight is a really fun game. And especially if you like platformers. Well, I'm so glad that I got this particular section on the games and not Shovel Knight. If you like that sort of stuff, great. <laughs> However, sorry if I butcher the name, but Helvetti is coming to Linux. Now, one of the things that instantly took me on this was the graphics. The graphics are superb. Mm -hmm. And then I found out they're actually hand-drawn. So the love that's gone into this game is astonishing. So there's another great-looking game that is promising Linux support, and it's called Helvetti. Helvetti is a 2D character action game made with hand-drawn art and animation based around Celtic and Gaelic mythology. So it's currently being funded on Kickstarter, but has already reached some of its funding goals. So the best part is when Gaming on Linux reached out to them in order to confirm support, the developer stated they've reached or they've received overwhelming demand for it and went on to add, Supporting Linux is actually very little work on our end, and we do have the ability to test it. We thought that we might as well do it. 
So that's great news from uh, a company that's just said, do you know what? It's going to be a little bit more work, but not too great. So let's just throw it out there, everybody. Yep. So going out there in a kind way and letting the devs know that you want a Linux version of the games, especially indie games, you're getting the attention of the companies and helping bring more games to Linux natively. But going back to this game, I was actually... Um, I actually surprised myself as to how deep I went into to finding out about this and jumping on their website. And part of the Kickstarter, the fascination is, as they are bringing on new characters, they are then showing you those moves that those characters can do, what part they're going to play in the game. And you as a player, if you're a risk taker, then you should navigate towards this type of person because you've got to become really good at combination kicks. And this is one of those games where it would drive me crazy because if I can't do shift left out F4, K minus two plus enter within <laughs> half a second, then I've already lost the fight. Or I could go quite easily and then walk through there with this dirty great big knight and just hit people with a sledgehammer. That works for me. That's much easier. <laughs> That's just Perfect. hit, hit, hit. But you've got all of that complexity going into this game, and I can't emphasize it more. It's hand-drawn. Yeah. So how many frames of – I just it, it's mind-boggling how much hard work has got to go into this. To So even if I never buy it, I really am tempted to just go and jump on like Kickstarter and donate some money just because the level of work that's gone into this is just astonishing. Yeah, this is one of those games that you look at the graphics and you realize that when people say gaming is art, that th this is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling gorgeous. The colors are so deep in the various scenes, but still clear, right? They're mm -hmm. not trying to hide things with the dark uh, colors and the dark dungeons and things that you can end up in. I have to believe, Dark One, this game is so up your alley, it's ridiculous. They might as well call it Dark One. <laughs> uh, from looking at it, it, to me, it reminds me of like Salt and Sanctuary. Mm -hmm. um, yep. There's another game, I think it's called Earthlock, which is kind of in a similar vein. But it, like the art style, like the hand-drawn backgrounds and like the actual character animation stuff, that reminds me more of like Bloodstained, uh, which is like a Castlevania game that came out a while ago. Yep. And but the backgrounds, like the 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 way the backgrounds look, almost remind me of like um, the hand drawn stuff in decks. Interesting. As far as like the the level of quality. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, yeah. And that to me, there there's no real price you can place on that kind of art, like this passion project. And that to me really is what this is because passion projects, especially for video games, are so rare to find and have so few games that are like shown a lot of love to the attention to detail with that like kind of hand hand-drawn animation stuff and whatnot so it, i'm definitely interested this is already on the wish list so. <laughs> yeah no i think you make a brilliant point there because so many projects uh, especially from big developers are just based on a formula Hey, right now MMORPGs are hot, so we're going to drop an MMORPG, and we need we we know we need to have these certain elements. And then from the indie game developers, which is something I really appreciated when I came to Linux, because before that I was just a AAA hunter, right? I'd just look for what's the next AAA game coming out. But uh, at least before Proton and things launched in Linux, you, you, I was forced to really look at the indie games more deeply, and that's what I found is 
yes, there's a lot of bad ones out there. <laughs> Make no mistake. But the ones that are good, that are truly the passion projects, there's nothing else like them out there. And they're just gorgeous and beautiful. And they, and you could tell this is something that somebody has imagined for years and years and years is finally getting to create. This looks like that type of game. I hope they meet the standards we're talking it up to because obviously it's not out yet. But I'm just so happy that they're willing to put this out on Linux because based on what I'm seeing so far and listening to it, this is going to be one to beat. So in our software spotlight of the week, this is one that I actually discovered at the top of the show when we started recording this, that this even existed because Zeb and Michael have been hiding it from me this entire time. <laughs> and I'm very angry at them for this. Uh, sorry. But I'm going to cover sorry. it here. I'm going to cover it here in the software spotlight. The tool is called Drill. And this application has an incredibly fast search algorithm for finding, locating files, folders, applications, on your machine. It's absolutely beautiful, easy to use, and I loved it from the second I opened it. But since I've only been able to use it for the last, you know, 15 minutes before that we actually kicked into the show, Michael, tell us about this tool you hid from everybody. Okay. So hiding is a little bit ridiculous to claim. I didn't hide it. I just didn't tell you about it. Very different. Um, oh, but it was on Twinnel. Yes, so okay, that's true. I didn't tell you. I didn't tell Ryan directly, but he mistakenly didn't watch the particular episode of This Week in Linux that I talked about it on, which was many months ago. I don't remember when I when I did it. But uh, Drill is a really cool application because it's a it's a file searcher, uh, and it takes its its idea and its uh, inspiration from Search Everything, which is available on um, Windows, and it's been a really popular search tool on Windows. And it's very similar in the way that they lay it out. It's similar to how it works. And it's a really cool application in general. But they provide an app image that makes it easy to use on whatever you want. It is based on GTK, so it's not the best toolkit, but it's still a good toolkit uh, for this purpose anyway. And uh, what's really cool about it is that the algorithm is very different. So like most file searchers, for some reason, use uh, depth-first files uh, algorithms. This uses a breadth-first al algorithm. And the way this changes it is it like, instead of create like most people don't use multi-subfolders under subfolders under subfolders and everything. Like I do actually, but most people don't do that. So this is a way for, you know, it makes it more speedy based on the way it checks the files. And then it also does it in a multi-threaded way. So oddly enough, uh, a lot of file managers don't have multi-threading. Some do, but not all of them do. And so having multi-threading makes it even more fast. And then you, so you love this application, right? I think it's quite awesome. Yes. I mean, I, I and it's GTK. So you love GTK. That is not how, what I would take More from this. More than That's not what I would take from this discuss, discussion. However, uh, Drill is a really cool application, and it's super fast, and it it does actually exclude certain file systems, like uh, like root folders aren't included in it, because why would you be searching for it for that stuff? Uh, but uh, they actually have a GTK version, but they also have a Q, or a command line thing, but they're also working on incurses, which is going to be really cool when they get the incurses when done. I think the drill is a pretty cool application, and if you uh, ever look, you know, need to look for your, you know, files really quickly, or if you have a lot of files that you, let's say you have a lot of music files that you want to look through or whatever, uh, you could use Drill to find that kind of stuff. I think it's pretty cool. And uh, wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute, Michael. This just in. I'm looking at the chat comments here in Zoom, mm -hmm. and I have just found out that Dark One also knew about this app. <laughs> 
and <laughs> might have been the one that recommended it to you that ended up in your show, he's stating. I don't know what you're talking about, Ryan. It's, this is a conspiracy theory. It's possible, theory though. It's me. possible. I, have n- I do not remember at all where I found it, so it is quite possible that Darkwin might mm-hmm. have done it. Now oh, everybody yeah. in chat saying they knew about it too. You know what? <laughs> You're all fired. Well, it's because it's because they actually watched this week in Linux. So there you yeah. go. I yeah. watch it. I help. I help with the notes sometimes. I just this one time I miss one episode and I'm abused. Mm-hmm. How many times have I been on the phone with you? I'm like Michael. Let me search for this. They gave you the opportunity to be like, "Hey, are you using Drill?" But no, never comes up. Well, never it came up, up today. So you're well, welcome. Just, <laughs> somebody said their Pomeranian knew about it. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> well Ryan, if you had actually drilled down and searched for it, oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. See, exactly. Before we before we leave on that rather awful note, what we will say is that it does have some very minor limitations, in as much as that it won't work or doesn't appear to work with attached storage. So it's only going to work on your 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 local file system and i don't know whether it works on the whole the whole file system or just your home folder so it should work on all of the systems and it also should say multiple it should support multiple disks because they actually have a structure saying that like they have multi-threaded well, for different disks but i'm not sure what the issue to be on my machine so maybe you need yeah. a thin link to those other to those other disks rather than it physically picking them up in your machine. Hopefully the developer of Drill can answer these questions if they would like to. Uh, So send us an email if if we're doing something wrong. Yeah, and come explain to me as the developer of the toolway didn't tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) So funny enough, finding things uh, that to 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 promote on the show is something that, uh, that Ryan had accidentally done today. And I had actually done something similar a couple days ago regarding Telegram because uh, this is a tip. Our tip and trick is related to Telegram because there's something I was trying to do on a different application and accidentally found a feature in Telegram. So when in, te- in most applications, you can do control plus and minus for zooming. So this is a extra bonus tip. But if you once you have the certain you're done doing whatever you need to do to zoom in and out, you can reset a zoom by hitting Control Zero. And I had accidentally had Telegram so selected on my desktop rather than the thing I was trying to zoom to reset, and it sent me directly to the Save Messages uh, section on my Telegram account. So it, I found there were shortcuts, and it goes beyond that because you can have the Control One through Five to quickly jump between all of your pinned uh, groups or chats or whatever you have pinned there. So you have one through five to be whatever you pinned and then zero, control zero to go to the save messages. And this is surprisingly a lot of, uh, it saved me a lot of time since I found it. And uh, so That's really cool. I'm so glad you just discovered it. I've known it for 24 years. Well, Telegram hasn't existed for 24 years, but um, I appreciate your attempt. Sure, to... 24 hours. <laughs> I think I think I think what you meant was that your Pomeranian knew about it. Yeah, and... <laughs> yeah. But there's also another thing I found recently for this the same thing. This is a, a feature that a lot of people don't know about, but you can do scheduled messaging in Telegram, which is something I've been like begging for for the the moment I found Telegram really because tele- scheduled messages allows you to write out a message to whoever you want and then schedule it for a later time to actually send it to them rather than doing it immediately and like I can set up a bunch of Michael are you awake to go out at 2 a.m. 3 a.m. 4 a.m. 5 a.m. Right, you could do that and that's what do not disturb mode is for so 
that, that this is actually really cool because it allows you to do that kind of thing. Or if you have a, someone you talk to like Zeb and like six hours or seven hours uh, difference, depending on the time of the time of the year, or whatever, uh, I could send a message to him. That's not rude. Like Ryan would send to me and uh, we mm-hmm. could schedule it in a way that's easier, but they also have another feature on top of that that allows you to send the message without sending a notification signal. So you can actually send it, but then not send the notification thing so it won't make make a sound or whatever, regardless of what oh, time it is. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. I see a little t- tutorial video coming up here. Yeah, maybe. Michael will get you it next year. Yeah, we, it's I, a shame we, it won't go back until 2022, but hey. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Anyway, you, but this you guys is, are making that time frame really short. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the the actual Telegram features those the scheduled messaging and sending the signals are only available on the mobile apps, unfortunately. And I can go ahead and do the territorial really quickly because all you have to do in order to do that is to press the send button and hold it down until the little pop up dialog to to do the other thing is. So the shortcuts, unfortunately, only available on desktop. The send this no signal and the scheduled messages only available on the mobile. But hey, at least they're they're there now. So there you they go. They need to converge that and then go fully open source, and Telegram will basically take over the world. Yes, I agree with all that. Yeah. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, thank you so much for your continued support. And it's important to know that we absolutely undoubtedly love our patrons that support this show and you can join and become a patron for just one dollar as darn near free and you get all these additional perks like you get the unedited version of the show that michael posts or you can join us live when we're recording which is typically on sundays and you get extra content that is not released so definitely consider being a supporter of the show And speaking of support, you can become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums and our new Mumble server. And so Mumble server is a great place for you to go if you're playing some games or you just want to chat with people. Sometimes things can't be just handled in text. The discourse forums are blowing up, which is fantastic. Problem for us to have, we've got the the Mm -hmm. amount of people who are signing up is just skyrocketing. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for supporting those forums because there's nothing worse than going to forums and it being a ghost zone. So um, thankfully, we don't have that problem. We're getting lots of support on the forums. There are lots of fantastic topics and things. uh, And so we like to join into the discussions there as well. And you have Linux for everyone. DOS Geek, This Week in Linux, Ask Noah Show, Tux Digital, Zebedee Boss, and the new content coming from DLN Extend, which is available there for you. We have so much content for you. You really have nothing else you can get done for the rest of the week except listen to our shows. <laughs> Absolutely. So please get back to us and provide some feedback or ask any questions you may have. There are numerous, numerous messages that you can do this via. You can do it email, comments at destinationlinux.org, our Telegram group, our Discord, our Discourse, Twitter, Mastodon, and other ways that you can find that are on our website, destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. So please keep the comments and questions coming. We love to read them and hear of ways that we might be able to improve the show or just a particular subject that you want to talk about. And finally, as Ryan has already mentioned, don't forget to join our Mumble server because sometimes chatting to someone about a particular problem is so much quicker than doing it over um, text. So chat with the community, set up gaming sessions. It doesn't have to be an official one that we within the Destination Linux Network have done. You guys can just throw up an impromptu gaming session and and see who uh, joins in. So 
enjoy that networking. And if you want more content from us, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels that you can check out. So you can, of course, you can go to destinationlinux.network to see every, all the channels there. But if you want to go to directly, you can go to youtube.com slash dosgeek to find Ryan's content where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. Especially check out the latest uh, Pinebook stuff he's been doing for the Pinebook Pro. You can check out uh, youtube.com slash zebityboss where you can get content from Zeb where he does, he's playing some games on his uh, Zebedee Gaming YouTube channel. You can find uh, the This Week in Linux podcast the one that Ryan didn't watch for the particular topic. Of drill. <laughs> and uh, that's an in-depth weekly Linux news podcast that's available at tuxdigital.com and also destinationlinux.network, of course. And you can check out Noah on his weekly talk radio show, the Ask Noah Show, at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. And, of course, you can go check out our Dark Ones uh, guest host content by going to uh, YouTube, actually, tuxdigital.com slash darkone. That's easier. You get, it's just a little bit of a fair warning. There is a little bit of a not safe for work issue there. Anyway, as far as language goes, right? Just to be language safe. goes basically, yeah. but the, the content is really informative and really interesting. So if you want to check it out, you have, we have a link in the show notes there. So since Noah was the host of this episode, we're, he can't be here for doing the outro. We're going to hand it off to the guest host. So dark one, take it away. So everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thank you. Thanks Bye-bye. everyone.